this uh, truly is a perfect storm Sunday, isn't it? We've got uh, first Sunday of spring break, and uh, we've lost an hour of sleep, and uh, we've kind of dragged ourselves to worship. But for a preacher type like me, this is the greatest Sunday in the world to preach because they haven't changed the clock back there, and I figure I've got an hour and 40 minutes. <laughs> Oh, I won't take that long. But I don't get to do this very often, so maybe I... No. When Todd asked me to fill in for him this Sunday, uh, my mind immediately went into uh, overdrive. Uh, I mean, when you have a whole Bible to choose from, it's kind of hard to nail it down to just one thing. But one of the things that we see woven throughout Scripture uh, is the concept of worship. One of the things that's near and dear to my heart is the idea of worship, both personal and corporate. As I thought and prayed, the passage that uh, Bert read for you this morning came to my mind. And uh, thank you, Bert, for reading for us. And I uh, decided to uh, take this passage and use it as our Uh, passage uh, to worship and to talk about worship. And uh, then then I looked at Todd's preaching schedule. We had decided that I would do something standalone. He would continue in Philippians when he got back. And I looked at his preaching schedule. And if you were here last week, you'll remember he spoke from Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. And verses 9, 10, and 11 Tell us, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know if you saw it as Bert read, but that... Those words that Paul wrote anticipate a time yet future when everyone will bow before him. And I just love it when God does stuff like that. He leads me to this passage, and it follows on exactly what Todd shared last week. Now, I feel that we're a little bit like the Golden Knights parachute jump team. And we're jumping into a stadium, but we're jumping into the book of Revelation. And I think if we're to understand this passage, we need to get our bearings. We need to set it in its context of the book and of the chapter. And by the way, if you're not there yet, I invite you to turn to Revelation chapter 5. There's an outline in your bulletin if you'd like to take a few notes along the way. Revelation chapter 5, but I'd like for you to just keep your finger there and turn back to chapter 1 and verse 19. John begins the revelation of Jesus Christ with uh, some introductory remarks. And then in uh, chapter 1, verse 19, he gives to us an outline. Is this thing working, Manuel, or you just can't hear me? Manuel's giving me this. Are you just deaf, or is this thing not working? Am Am I working back there? We're not working back there, Chris. All right, I'll speak up. 
but not for long, trust me. Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. Many Bible scholars believe this is a, uh, a good outline for the book of Revelation. Therefore, write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after these things. Write the things which you have seen. And in chapter 1, he, he pens for us a vision of the risen Lord Jesus Christ, and he pictures him as a judge. Write the things which are, and in chapters 2 and 3, uh, he shares with us what the Lord gives him, letters to the uh, messages to the seven churches of Revelation. Those churches that are typical of messages that churches need to hear down through the ages. And then the things which will come, which begins in chapter 4. Now, I am of the humble opinion that between chapters 3 and 4 of the book of Revelation, although it's not mentioned, the rapture of the church occurs. Just jot down 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18. That is, I believe, the catching away of the church prior to the tribulation period. We come to chapters 4 and 5. We've had the church raptured, and now we see a picture of worship in heaven. Chapter 4, God is worshipped as creator. Chapter 5, Jesus is worshipped as Savior. And this setting of worship is the prelude to the judgment of God that we see in the tribulation period. Chapters 6 through 18 depict that time of tribulation. The judgment of the seals and the trumpets and the bowls. That's followed by the second coming of Jesus Christ in chapter 19. Chapter 20 John writes about the millennial kingdom that Jesus will establish on the earth in which he will reign for a thousand years. And the book closes in chapters 21 and 22 with a new heaven and a new earth. Eternity, if you will. But here, where we're at, there is worship as a prelude to the judgment that's to come. In chapter 5 and verses 1 through 7, John paints a picture for us, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 5 and verse 1. I I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a book written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. Um, You might want to jot down, if you take notes, Isaiah chapter 7, verses 11, 12, 13, 14, because what we see here is pictured by Isaiah, excuse me, Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, verses 11, 12, 13, in that area. What we see in Daniel is is, uh, fulfilled here in the book of Revelation. God holds the seal, the the book that is sealed. This book, I believe, contains his plan and purpose for the judgment that's about to come for uh, the, the sin of the world. It's interesting. I believe the judgment comes because Uh, The people of the world have rejected God as creator and rejected Jesus as Savior. Notice John says there's no one who's qualified to open the book, and this affects John in 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 a significant way. He begins to weep. He begins to cry because there's no one worthy to open the book. And then one of the elders said, wait a minute, wait a minute, stop weeping. And he describes Jesus in in an interesting way. The lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome as to open the book and its seven seals. All of those terms are descriptive of 
Jesus at one point or another in the Scriptures. He goes on, And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures, the elders and the lambs standing as if slain, having seven horns, pictures of authority, and seven eyes, uh, the, the seven spirits of God who was sent out into all the earth. And he came, the Lord Jesus came, and took the book from the Father and then would open the book and execute judgment on the earth beginning with chapter 6. But now, beginning in verse 8, we have this spontaneous worship. It worships with those who are closest to the throne, the four living creatures and the elders. And then like a wave at a football game, it, it spreads out in concentric circles. And what I want us to see this morning is that what we see as it relates to worship in heaven is something that ought to be part of our worship experience both personally and corporately. Because I see, what I think we see here is the essence of genuine worship. First of all, as we look at this passage, the essence of genuine worship has to do with a submission to his sovereignty. Notice, when he had taken the book, the four living creatures, and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. And look at the end of verse 14. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. The four living creatures, those angelic attendants, and the 24 elders who are representative of the believers of the church age are, are, are confronted with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the glorified Christ who takes the scroll, the book, and like cut timber, they fall before him in worship. This reaction to God and the Lord Jesus Christ shouldn't surprise us. Every time we bump into God or the risen Christ in Scripture, we find people bowing down before him. Why? Because of his glorified state. One Bible teacher talks about meeting a man who claimed that while he was shaving one morning, he had a vision of Jesus Christ. Jesus appeared to him, and he asked the Bible teacher, do you believe me? And the Bible teacher said, well, um, did you continue shaving? And the man said, yes. He said, well, you didn't see Jesus. I don't know who you saw, but you didn't see Jesus. Because if you'd seen the risen, glorified Christ, you'd have bowed before him. And I am convinced... (laughs) that if those doors were to open and Jesus came through those doors, we wouldn't jump up and cheer and glad hand. We would fall on our face in worship before him. The first thing I want you to see from this passage, this heavenly worship, is that the true essence of genuine worship is a submission to his sovereignty. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. We are to bow before him in humble submission. Let me remind you that both the Greek word and the Hebrew word that is translated worship in our English text, behind those Greek and Hebrew words is the concept of to bow. 
to prostrate oneself before the Lord. And I would submit to you that humble submission is to mark our worship at that future day in heaven and ought to mark our worship today. Nobody, nobody walks proudly into the presence of God. Peter was right. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. (laughs) How does this play itself out? It seems to me that for each of us individually and personally, that ought to mark our worship of him. I don't know how that's going to happen in your life. Maybe it's just that every time that you spend time with him on a daily basis, whether it's morning, afternoon, evening, whenever you have those times with him, just ask him to humble you before him. Remind yourself of who he is. A very practical way, maybe it might be that it would be good for you just to get down by your chair or your bed and on your knees. Worship him. Bow before him. When it comes to this worship hour, (laughs) practically we can't be bowing down. (laughs) Just no place for it. So again, it's one of those things where we've got to come with an attitude of humble submission. A number of years ago, Ron Allen and Alan Bohr wrote a book called Worship, The Missing Jewel. 280 pages about worship. I remember one thing from the book. They said, worship is not art. It's the heart. Worship isn't art. It's the heart. And I guess we need to ask the question, what kind of a heart do you come to these corporate worship services with? We've got a problem, don't we? We we live in a spectator-oriented society. I've watched a, lot of, lost a lot, watched a lot of basketball this weekend. Congratulations to Leland. Yay! We watch plays, we watch movies, we watch television, and we come to church, and we think we've come to watch something unfold. We think we're the audience. <laughs> and those guys up here are kind of the performers. How wrong that is. We come as worshipers. Well, there's an audience, (laughs) an audience of one. He is watching our worship. Todd and Mark and Chris and those folks, they're just facilitators. Their their goal, their job (laughs) is to direct our thoughts heavenward. I hear people say, not so much when I was pastoring, they wouldn't say this, but I've heard it. I just didn't get any of that worship service. I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if you got anything out of it or not. It's not for you. It's for him. And don't misunderstand me. I am convinced that if you come with a heart of worship that, that, that sees this as an opportunity to to bow before him and worship, you'll get something out of it. It will happen. 
And the lunch thing today when you're doing roast the pastor, just, just realize my goal here today is just to focus you on him. Notice something else about this picture. There are harps and bowls. Those who are around the throne, before the Lamb, they have harps, musical instruments. Harp is a common instrument in the Scriptures. It was an instrument of joy. Find it over and over again. Psalm 77.22 says, I will also praise you with the harp. Only the harp and the trumpet are mentioned in this heavenly worship, but I have a theory. I call it wisdomology. It's can't prove it. But as I look at Scripture, there are so many different musical instruments that are used to praise God. Check out Psalm 150. I don't think there's any instrument that we cannot use to praise God. From a grand piano to a washboard, anything can be used to praise His name. I hate to say this, but I think some of our sour believers are going to be surprised, if not shocked, when they get to heaven. The variety of musical instruments used in heaven's worship Instruments beyond 18th century England and the church of the 1950s. I could talk a lot about music, but I won't go there. Let's be careful. Let's be careful that we don't box ourselves in and how it's appropriate to worship God. There is no church music and no church instruments. All can be used to praise Him with hearts of worship. Then there are those golden bowls. These, these were well, bowls and they had large openings and they were used in the temple and the tabernacle to burn incense. And here the text tells us that these represent the prayers of the believers in heaven. What are they praying about? Well, in the context of this passage, just before the tribulation, I think they're praying for God to vindicate Himself to do what he has said he will do, to mete out judgment to those who reject God as creator and Jesus as Savior. And God will answer, answer those prayers. First, the essence of true worship is a submission to his sovereignty. Second, it's a celebration of his salvation. And they sang a new song. <laughs> Let me just stop for a moment. I stop all the time through this passage just so much a new song we bump into that concept over and over and over again why a new song because the old songs won't do god has done something new in the life of an individual and they compose a new song as part of worship we see that throughout the psalms and here the heavenly choir sang a new song Warren Worsby looked at these verses and said there are four aspects to this song. He said, first, it's a song of adoration. Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals. Jesus alone is worthy to 
take the book that God gave him and to break the seals. He alone is capable. He alone is qualified. Only Christ can bring human history to its planned and designed end and usher in God's kingdom. Secondly, Worsby says it's a gospel song. The song looks back to the cross. For you were slain and purchased for God. Looks to the finished work of Christ on the cross. He alone is capable because he hung on a cross and died for our sins. The word purchase that's It's translated from a Greek word that means to buy something out of the marketplace. Jesus came into the world with the gold of his blood and the silver of his bruised body. He paid the ultimate price for sin and bought men and women, boys and girls, out of the marketplace of sin. Think about it. Of all the world's religions, everyone except Christianity is human-oriented. It's based on what I can do to earn my way to heaven. Only Christianity is the religion of divine accomplishment. Only Christianity teaches that salvation is a gift from God. Based on faith. Worsby says, third of all, it's a missionary song. Notice, you purchased men from every tribe and tongue and people and, and nation. Around that throne will be people from everywhere. Every conceivable background, every descent, every clan, every tongue, every language. Together, these terms talk about the universal nature of the followers of Jesus Christ. Hear me and hear me well. They do not teach universalism. The heresy that one day everyone will be saved. That's not what it says. It says from every tribe, from, out of, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, there will be those who have placed their faith in Christ and will be part of this great and grand choir. Worsby says it's a devotional song. It's not that we've been saved from something. We've been saved for something. We've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. We have been saved to be priests, to serve Him, and to ultimately rule with Him. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth. What a privilege we have. What a privilege we will have. The true essence of genuine worship is celebrating the salvation that God has provided through Jesus Christ. And let me ask you, is that a part of your worship experience on a personal level? Are you grateful for what God has done for you? And do you express that regularly in your private times with him? And let's move this thing about salvation from saved from sin on my way to heaven. That's just part of the message. Unfortunately, too often we camp on that and we forget that salvation is a total package. 
Yeah, I'm saved from sin. Yeah, I'm on my way to heaven. But I'm walking with Jesus in the here and now. Dr. Lewis Berry Chafer, the, one of the founders and the first president of Dallas Seminary, wrote a book entitled simply Salvation. In that book, he talks about 33 things that happened the moment you were saved. It's a great thought. I'll have to reproduce it and put it on the information counter. All of the things that happened when you became a believer. I'm a co-heir with Jesus. I've been born again, filled with the Spirit, and on and on and on. And we ought to give thanks for that regularly. And we come for corporate worship that ought to be foremost on our minds. Thankful for our salvation that allows us to come to this place and worship Him. One of the things that we try to do over the years, that we've tried to do over the years and continue to do, is that part of the service where we take our morning offering. And churches are known for, yeah, give me your money, give me, give me, give me, give me. That's what the offering is not about. That's what we. We put the little caveat caveat in there that if you're a visitor, we don't want you to feel obligated to give but to receive from us. Why? Because we see this as an act of worship because we, we give because he first gave. We, we give as a, uh, because he gave his son and we give so that that message can be proclaimed from this place. The essence of true worship. That's like an hour and 15 minutes to go. Uh, the essence of true worship. It's first a submission to his sovereignty. It's a celebration of his salvation. And thirdly, it's the exaltation of his name. The company of worshipers expands and enlarges to include the angels of heaven. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. John doesn't have a number that he can use. He uses the word myriad, which means 10,000 times 10,000. But notice it's in the plural, myriads upon myriads and thousands upon thousands. And I don't know how he counted them, but it's billions of people. The number is staggering that he sees. All heaven breaks loose. This, this assembled throng of millions and millions and millions of people say with a loud voice, Fune Megale, with megaphones. The chant is deafening. Even a partially deaf old guy like me could hear this. Not some hushed, quiet worship service. It's an explosion of celebration. And these worshipers are are responding to Jesus and lifting up his name. He is worthy to receive the scroll along with its power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He He has the right to bring History to its conclusion. I want you to notice that between each of those things that is mentioned, there is the connective and, and the writer puts that in there to isolate each one of those things and highlight each one of them. Power, the control over created order. When the, when the scroll of the tribulation is opened and the judgments are, 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 are executed, 
the world will see God's power. They will see Jesus' power to harness the wind, to cause earthquakes, to send famines and plagues and transform water to blood. We just got a small taste of the whole issue of earthquakes this weekend, didn't we? The, the, the pictures of what occurred in Japan were vivid and, and, and scary. Secondly, riches. I take it that means the riches, both spiritual and material, are at his disposal to accomplish this agenda that God has given to him. The wisdom simply means to choose the best plans to carry out this plan. And then the word might. It means working might. It means power in action, stresses ability that Jesus will have. The next three things, honor, glory, and blessing, refer to different aspects of our worship. Honor, reverence, adoration, do him as our sovereign Lord. Glory, he's greatly to be praised because of his intrinsic deity, his heavenly radiance, his holy majesty, and blessing. It's an interesting word. We get our English word eulogy from this word. At a funeral, we give a eulogy. We speak well of the person who has passed away. That day we will speak well. We will declare his excellencies. But what I want you to see is this this heavenly worship is not some mindless, emotional babbling but a passionate reciting of God's character and attributes back to him. Worship is our natural response when we behold the greatness of God. And again, I would challenge you in your worship, make this a part of it. Say to God, I'm grateful for your power and your majesty, for your justice, Worship him by talking about his characteristics and his attributes. Fourthly and finally, and if you're taking notes and you're using the bulletin, this one didn't make it in the bulletin, but let me give it to you. It's a declaration of his greatness, closely tied to the previous. But the fourth element, if you will, of the true essence of genuine worship is the declaration of his greatness. Verses 13 and 14, And every created thing which is in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them. I heard them saying to him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory, dominion forever and ever. John's vision expands to all of creation. Everyone, everywhere, in heaven, the host of the cherubim and the seraphim and the the angelic being and the saints who are there on the earth, the living saints, unbelievers, Satan, loosed demons, under the sea, all imprisoned demons and those in hell. This is anticipatory of that great and final day. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 2, as we read earlier, every knee will bow, those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One person put it this way. 
Even the devil and his demon hosts are brought to a place where, in spite of themselves and their defiance of God and Christ's authority and his unwillingness to praise him, then they will be forced to acknowledge God and Christ and praise them. There will be no atheists on this day. There'll be a lot of lost theists. They'll all acknowledge God, but they'll never accept him. We see that as we work through the tribulation. One of the most heartbreaking things as you read through the tribulation is that in spite of all that God does, people will not turn to him. The assembled choir of everyone everywhere declares the greatness of the Son. Blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever, infinitely and definitely and eternally. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, Jesus, a clear, clear indicator of the deity of Jesus Christ. He is Lord, He is God, and must be worshipped. And they kept saying, four living creatures kept saying, the, the emphasis of the grammar is clear that this is not a one-time phrase, that this will occur, occur over and over and over again. And I take it that it's it will be done antiphonally. Blessing, amen. Honor, amen. Glory, amen. Dominion, amen. Raider, power. Raider, power. You get the picture. The scene ends the way it began. Comes full circle. The elders will fall flat on their face before God in humble worship. An hour and five minutes. But I'm almost done. Shortly after the Vietnam War ended, Dallas billionaire H. Ross Perot rented the Cotton Bowl. <laughs> He wanted to pay tribute to the returning soldiers from Vietnam. Pro invited, Pro invited the city of Dallas to come. He invited any veteran who served in the steamy jungles or rice fields of Vietnam to come, and he paid their way from their home to Dallas, and put them up and paid their way back home. Now, you've been around Dallas long enough. You know the Cotton Bowl has been a site of some pretty amazing things, but nothing compared to this evening. On one goal line, there was a, a large platform that was set up to house, if you will, the dignitaries and the celebrities who had come to witness this event and participate in it. The uh, Cotton Bowl was filled, <laughs> standing room only. The, the field itself was empty except for rows and rows and rows and rows of chairs. At the appointed time, a military band began playing Stars and Stripes Forever. And as that music filled the stadium, a single solitary American flag was raised on one end of the stadium. And then a procession of American soldiers came down from the other goal line, down a ramp into the stadium. And as those valiant warriors came, true American heroes, these folks got up on their feet and began clapping and cheering. 
yelling, raising American flags. The ovation was deafening. But that wasn't the end of it. At the end of that procession were those who had been seriously injured in the Vietnam War. Some came limping out on crutches or canes. Still others walked out extensively bandaged, assisted by nurses. Then came those who had lost their sight, escorted onto the field by fellow soldiers. And finally that entourage concluded with those who were in wheelchairs or on gurneys. By this time, that emotionally charged crowd was standing on their seats, cheering their heroes home. The roar was deafening. Uh, The last of these soldiers, I guess, is the ones who um, had paid the greatest price. And although they were all heroes, these were the true heroes of that evening. They shed their life's blood. They suffered the loss of limbs. Their sacrifice was great. And as it should be, the ovation was deafening. Their greater sacrifice made them the most worthy of the ovation. That scene at the Cotton Bowl years ago in some ways foreshadows a scene that will occur over and over and over again in heaven throughout the ages to come. God's Lamb, Jesus Christ, gave his life at the cross. He was brutally slain. He violently died for sins, for my sin. He paid the deepest price. His suffering was the greatest. He is unquestionably worthy to be worshipped. And there's coming a day when those of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ will find ourselves in heaven. We will behold Jesus Lamb who was slain, bearing those visual reminders, nail-scarred hands, the spear thrust in his side, standing in full glory. And we will respond in heartfelt worship as we have never adored him before. There's coming a day when all heaven will break loose. That will come because the Lamb has taken the scroll from the Father's hand. And God's great eternal plan is about to be fulfilled on the earth. And creation will be finally and completely released from the bondage of sin and death. What follows chapters 4 and 5 is an outpouring of the wrath of God on rebellious mankind who thumbed their nose at God as creator and Jesus as savior. We who have come to faith in Jesus Christ will be there. We will worship the Lamb who was brutally slain for our sins. And our worship will be characterized by a submission to his sovereignty, a celebration of his salvation, an exaltation of his name, and a declaration of his greatness. And I would submit to you, if we were to worship him today, even as a, in a small way that we'll worship him then, we must catch this vision of Christ recorded 
in Revelation chapter 5. They sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break the seals. For you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe and every tongue and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God. They will reign upon the earth forever. Lord God, thank you for um, the chance to spend a few moments this morning thinking about heavenly worship. Lord, it never ceases to amaze me that as John recorded in his gospel in chapter 4 that you are seeking men and women, boys and girls who will worship you in spirit and in truth. May we be among that number. May our worship both corporately and personally be characterized by submission to your sovereignty, to celebration of the salvation that you've given to us through Jesus, characterized by exalting your name on a regular basis and following on to that, the declaration of your greatness. Give us hearts of worship for your glory and for our good. I pray in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus. Amen.